HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker, hosting the Women in Food and Farming Festival on May 8th and 9th. Learn more at womennourish.com. Hi. Hi there, Bev. It's Meg calling. How are you? Uh, well, I'm getting a little hungry. Oh, good. <laughs> well, good timing then. <laughs> what are we having today? Lunch today is roasted pork with mashed potatoes and a green bean casserole. And um, there's a little Easter treat inside the bag, too, I think. So it sounds good. So I'm glad you're hungry. Okay, so I'll see you at the usual time? Yeah, a little bit after, well, maybe 11.20 or so. And um, yeah, and I'll see you soon. This conversation preempted a recent food delivery in rural Maine. Community members there have come together to keep senior citizens well-fed and connected to their neighbors. We'll hear more about this grassroots program in just a moment. Many of us have family recipes that have been around for generations. Maybe they're handwritten in old notebooks or digitized on the cloud for easy access. Whatever form they take, these recipes are artifacts. They transcend time to remind us of how our elders and our families continue to have lasting influences on our lives, even and especially in a time of isolation. This week, we dedicate our stories to elders, grandparents, and family members who came before us. First, we'll follow up on the food delivery program that's been instituted for elders on a rural island in Maine. Then we take a seat at the table to learn how retirement home residents are rejoicing in the simple act of dining together. We journey to Georgia, where a farmer is continuing a century-long family legacy, and we dive into the various ways that food is used to remember ancestors around the world. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. First up, Carmen Sherlock is here to tell us about how one rural community has come together to make the pandemic a little easier and tastier for its elders. Many seniors have weathered the pandemic in particularly isolated conditions, in nursing homes or home alone. But then there are those who are remote to begin with, seniors from rural places, where homes are nestled deep in the woods and human interaction was harder to come by even before the pandemic began. 
I talked with some folks from Deer Isle, Maine, a small island in Downeast, Maine, with a population of less than 3,000, where community members have been getting creative with ways to keep their elders connected. It's a small island. A lot of them I knew when I was a kid, have continued to uh, to know, you know, growing up and now at age 44, you know, on the island. So they all, you know, I kind of have a soft spot um, for each of them. And I also knew that they would, you know, start feeling isolated and lonely without the get-togethers that they're used to doing. So it was, you know, to really help them feel like they they weren't alone and that people were still caring about them. That's Barrett Gray, an island native. To combat the loneliness that many island elders were experiencing in quarantine, he started an initiative that he calls the Lunchbox Program. Through this program, local volunteers cook and deliver weekly meals to the homes of over 60 island seniors. Some live at the local nursing home, but the majority live alone. Lorraine Knowlton, a longtime island resident, looks forward to both the food and the social interaction that the program provides. For one thing, you see a smiling face, and for a second thing, you get a meal. You know, many times, as older folk, we don't cook the same way we used to, you know. So that, that really was a good good thing. And, and in the bag, there was always uh, little notes, colored things and so forth from the children, you know, that they, they really did a good job with their lunchboxes. These seniors get two meals each week one from a local restaurant, and one homemade meal. Before each meal, they receive a morning phone call from one of the volunteers asking how they're doing. The meals also come with a word search puzzle and artwork made by a local island child. Each Thursday meal still receives a picture um, that's drawn by an island student from six months old up to 18 years old and a poem. And I oftentimes joke, although... I say joke, I I think it's actually probably true. They look forward more to these pictures than they actually do the meal. (laughs) You know, they've all really formed a bond with their drivers. And I know they always really look forward to their phone call from from their volunteer driver and their delivery of the meal, which is, you know, really what we were trying to do. And then all these little things that we've added into this program um, is kind of just like icing on the cake. With creativity and support from fellow island residents, Barrett has started other initiatives as well to cultivate a sense of community for these elders during COVID. Yeah, so the Secret Pal program, uh, basically the way it works is somebody in the community, I pair up with one of my seniors and I ask that they write just a kind of a friendly um, hello note and they give a uh, like a little gift, and the gift can be anything from flowers to a puzzle. My goal is something that will brighten their day, maybe their month. At Valentine's Day, there was a lot of flowers and chocolates that went out. I kind of encouraged the pals to try to do something that keeps the seniors engaged um, a little bit. You know, whether it is a, a puzzle or these word search books. Once word got out that we were um, doing the Secret Pal program, people were contacting me saying, "Hey." I'd like to be somebody's secret pal. So most everybody, um, if they are single at home that receive our meals, also have a secret pal. COVID has brought many folks to uh, gather that have put their ideas to work. I think people have become a little closer, a little more thoughtful maybe, or uh, wanting to help more since COVID. 
I mean, I have to say, living on Dural Stonington on this island, there's such a great sense of community. So whenever we've had an obstacle or a need, the island has stepped up and has met that need. In a way, rural living has fostered an even deeper sense of connectedness for these islanders, who have been able to swiftly organize themselves around their community's needs. Speaking to Barrett and other volunteers, I was struck by their unanimous sense of humility. This is clearly a project of giving, not a project of ego. No one seemed to be weighed down by lofty, unattainable goals, and that has made them remarkable organizers. And while Deer Isle is just one community, it offers us insight into how we might be able to listen to and anticipate the needs of our own community members in urban and rural spaces alike. Next up, Caroline Fox takes us inside a retirement community after the COVID-19 vaccine. With residents spending the past year in isolation, this vaccine promises the long-awaited return to communal dining. Were you guys excited to return to dining? Oh, yeah. We're sick and tired of the food being served. Yes, yes, yes. We're glad to go to to the dining room. That's a good question. Who knew that nowadays, such a simple question about eating out would stir up so much emotion? But right now, the whole country is restless. With the weather warming up and vaccines picking up speed, a return to normalcy feels closer than ever. After more than a year in lockdown, my grandparents are finally vaccinated and eager to welcome the ordinary back into their lives. Living in a retirement community where they've been stuck inside with just each other, the reopening of the communal dining room has never been more exciting. We heard recently about um, some residents in one facility that the, the women really wanted to um, put on their nicest clothes and, and look really nice because it felt like a really big event. It was something very special. They were going to be seeing individuals whom they have not seen, some of them, for a year. So really excited um, about that opportunity. That's Robin Grant the Director of Public Policy and Advocacy for the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, which advocates for the rights of nursing home residents. As soon as I finished speaking with Robin, my grandparents called me up to recap their first night back in the dining room. We had dinner last night in the Bistro restaurant at 6 o'clock. We ate with two women. Uh, One woman lives right next door to us, and another woman lives uh, down the hall. When I asked my grandpa about the last time he saw the two neighbors he dined with, he quietly said, it's been a long time. We uh, sat at a table for four. Uh, Because of social distancing, the restaurant was filled, but it was only filled with about 25 people. We bought our own wine. The two women that we were with, who were neighbors, who were friends with, prefer scotch. So they uh, drank scotch throughout dinner and we drank some red wine. Uh, we had nice, enjoyed conversations. We just went right in and started talking about different things, travel or this or that. The conversation went along fine. No politics. Uh, Everyone was glad to get out. Yeah, we're glad to get out. Uh, apartment. Our two neighbors were drinking the scotch like crazy. Uh, it was good. After a year of loneliness and disruption, a night of lively conversation, wine, and rum raisin ice cream brought back the lighter and jovial side to my grandpa that's been missing lately. But amid the anticipation for more dining rooms and activities to reopen, there's also lingering impacts that the past year has definitely left on residents. 
I do want to point out that for some, um, it'll be a time of sadness because they will see that um, some of their dear friends are not there and have died. And this kind of information, residents really haven't known who has died um, and who got COVID. And, and so for some, it will be a time of, of sadness. In the past year, according to my grandpa, 14 residents from his community passed away and 25 employees got sick from COVID-19. A guard was placed at the entrance gate patrolling exactly who enters and exits the residence. And as fear stirred through the hallways, Robin explained to me that seniors across the country battled depression and despondency, which can negatively affect eating habits and cause weight loss. It's been a year of great loneliness. During the pandemic, residents have been essentially confined to their rooms, so no communal dining whatsoever. So their food has been brought um, to them in their rooms. You know, when you're um, what you're used to and, and what you want and you look forward to is that social interaction and that connection with other people. That's all of a sudden that's that's completely taken away with you uh, from you. There's been significant weight loss for a number of reasons, also because some residents had uh, family members who would come in and help them to eat or um, be there to encourage them. And so without that, it really has had an impact on a lot of residents. By winter 2021, excitement began trickling through the phone lines as residents received calls to schedule their vaccinations. They gave us an appointment. They assigned us a time. They said, on a certain Saturday in two yeah. weeks, everybody's going to be vaccinated. Your time is 2.45. That's and right. they set up uh, right. the whole thing in the, main bo- in the main meeting room. And everybody they came. Everybody in one day. And they did everybody in one day. With appointments lined up back to back, vaccination day quickly turned into the hottest new social event. And residents were savoring every last minute of their time slot. Yeah, we're happy to see each other because we haven't seen anybody. Yeah. Say so you waved. Some people called on the phone. What time is your appointment? Mine's 2.45. Our friend, the dentist, he, he was 3.30. And it was like a social event. You know, after you got the shot, you had to sit there for 15, 20 minutes. So that gave you an opportunity to wave to some of the other people as they were going out. For older residents across the country, A vaccine promised a big leap from hallway waves to mask-free, face-to-face conversation. In the bustle of a usual day pre-COVID, my grandparents would sometimes attend lectures or concerts, but usually they tended to keep to themselves. It was dinner time when they really broke out of their shells, calling a friend or nearby neighbor to join them in the dining room. There's a lot of socializing around food. That really is like the big uh, social activity here. Mealtimes are, you know, a chance to really get to know each other and develop some really um, important bonds of friendship. The people at your table really become, you know, your table mates become important people in your life. By 7.45 on their first night back in the dining room, my grandparents were wrapping up dessert while their neighbors took their final sips of scotch. They all thanked the staff for a wonderful reunion meal and put their masks back on before heading out. Because of social distancing, each neighbor waited patiently by the elevator to ride alone, even though they all lived right across the hall. While the dinner flowed smoothly, everything was not nearly close to going back to normal. Even with the entire community and staff vaccinated, 
the residence isn't even halfway open. Socially distanced events are being rolled out very slowly, and the rules on outside visitors are just starting to lift. My grandparents are getting a taste of normalcy, both figuratively and literally, but there's still a long way to go. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker, hosting the Women in Food and Farming Festival. This Mother's Day weekend, May 8th and 9th, EscapeMaker.com will present the first annual Women in Food and Farming Festival at Stone Ridge Orchard in New York's Hudson Valley. That's just two hours outside of New York City in Ulster County. The two-day hybrid live and virtual event open to the public will honor and celebrate women-owned businesses in the food, farm, and craft beverage spaces and provide entrepreneur resources. A live farmer's market on May 8th will host dozens of women farmers and craft beverage and food producers, with products ranging from cakes and cookies to fresh veggies and honey to hot sauces and teas, all locally sourced and produced. For those not able to attend in person, there will be a virtual experience on May 9th. It will include 25 online tours, demos, and educational presentations on various topics on demand for the public and trade. Learn more at womennourish.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. Our next story spotlights the generational knowledge used to cultivate a family farm. I feel very fortunate to be on my own family's land and be the sixth generation to be here farming. And then to have my children be the seventh to have planted, harvested, and eaten from a crop from this land. That's Matthew Rayford, host of HRN show Jupiter's Almanac. I'm the great-great-great-grandson of Jupiter Gilliard a former slave who bought the land I now farm in Georgia nearly 150 years ago. Through the years, my ancestors have passed on some essential and hard-earned wisdom about growing and producing the food we eat. Let's talk about a sense of place. Um, the place that we're in, in Brunswick, Georgia, is one of the first five ports that George Washington put into place. Since we've uh, been on the family land, we've been able to actually uh, find... Uh, letters written between my uh, great-grandmother and my grandmother on how things were planted, uh, what was taken to market, and what time of year it was taken to market. Um, I think those things have become our farmer's almanac here at the farm. Matthew calls himself a prodigal son. He left the farm behind for many years, but when he returned, he had a direct line to his family's legacy. We're talking about my great grandmother who was born 1881, I believe, yeah, 1881, who was able to read and write. There's been lots of black land loss. I think that my family being able to stay connected to each other um, and understanding the value of this land is really the only reason that we've been able to hold on to it. If you want to learn more about Matthew's journey, you can find Jupiter's Almanac wherever you get your podcasts. And you can pre-order his first cookbook, Bresson Yam, Gullah Geechee Recipes from a Sixth Generation Farmer.
In our final story, we focus on the elders in our lives who have already passed on. How do we remember them? How do we grieve them? And why is food so often involved? To get some answers, Hannah Fulmer talks with Professor Candy Can, who researches death and grief across world religions. Food is tied to grief all over the world. Sweden and China have traditions involving funeral candy. There's shared meals at wakes and funeral luncheons. Offerings are left at cemeteries and altars. And Pontic Greeks hold graveside picnics. Why food? Why do you think that's an item we focus on? Well, because food is what gives us sustenance, right? So food is, in many ways, that very symbol of life. That's Professor Can. In the book Dying to Eat, she looks at how food is used to remember the dead around the world. These traditions come from far-flung locations and diverse philosophies. But still, similarities emerge. One of the first ones would be um, sweet foods or sugar. So in China, for example, when you go to a funeral, as you are leaving, you're handed a piece of sweet brown sugar candy. And the idea is that you will leave without bitterness or without unhappy thoughts. And you also see this emphasis on sugar skulls and Dia de los Muertos. And then I would also say bread and these kind of Reformation Christianity. And you see this idea of bread and wine. In some traditions, food is used to care for the dead. When you make food offerings at the gravesite or at the memorial tablet, you are in fact caring for the dead and you're finding ways in which to still offer them life in their new form. I think the one that most Americans will be familiar with is Dia de los Muertos. Uh, That is a celebration of the Day of the Dead in Mexico, which is really um, an extension of All Souls Day and the traditional Catholic practice and belief that people who had died would be returning to Earth to visit their loved ones and their families. But Mexico is far from alone in this practice. For example, in Japan, it's traditional to make offerings for 49 days after someone has died, and you leave food for them every day so that as they make this transition into the afterlife, they don't go hungry. And in return, they then care for the living, and they will um, help you out in any way that they can. In other traditions, food does almost the complete opposite. In Protestant cultures, for example, in um, southern United States and Texas, people often bring casserole dishes. So they're often like portable dishes that serve a large amount of people. So the idea there is that food is functioning as a way to bring the community together to tell stories about the deceased. But then it also situates the deceased precisely in the past. Despite their differences, all of these traditions help us grieve. I find these um, rituals, very healthy rituals that help the world of the living come to terms with death, come to terms with the absence of um, the person from the world of the living. And also they give them an opportunity to reformulate a new relationship with them as deceased. Food builds connections between people. Preparing food, sharing it, these traditions bring friends and family together and help the living connect with the dead. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Carmen Sherlock, Caroline Fox, Sophia Leibowitz, Hannah Fulmer, and Tao V. Duong. Meet in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. 
Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hello, you can write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>